Everybody, we're going to start up now. Um, welcome to the Wooden Shoe. Um, thanks for coming out on this day that uh, <laughs> I don't even know how, how to describe it. I'm surprised that you're, you all made it here, and I'm happy that we're all in this room together. Um, it's technically a holiday because our trash didn't get picked up. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, if you've ever been here before, we're an all-volunteer anarchist collective we formed in 1976. And uh, we're always accepting uh, new uh, applications if you're interested in volunteering, or if you have a friend that's interested, uh, we have applications at the front desk. And um, we also have a sign-up sheet for um, our announcement uh, list, so you can get uh, emails about events like this that we have going on. Um, we have an, a great reading tomorrow night. Um, it's more of like a literary reading with a, a touring novelist, uh, Davy Davis, and there's a couple of local poets will be reading, so that should be pretty fun. Um, so without further ado, I want to um, introduce uh, Anna Fagenbaum, this new book, uh, Tear Gas. We have it for sale. We're going to do 20% uh, off tonight, so this is definitely uh, the night to get it if you, if you want the book. Um, Anna Fagenbaum is a co-author of the book Protest Camps, and her work has appeared in Vice, The Atlantic, Al Jazeera, America, The Guardian, Salon, Financial Times, Open Democracy, New Internationalists, and Waging Nonviolence. She's a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Media and Communication at Bournemouth University. Um, and I will let you guys take it from there. All right, thank you very much. Great. All right, thank you. Okay, great. Thanks so much. And I want to thank Dave, too, who helped me set this up. Um, and Jen, who is going, Jen Kinney, who's a local journalist, who is going to um, be kind of interviewing me. So the way we're going to do this, I'm going to do like a kind of traditional reading from the book. And I've picked the excerpt that is based in Philly, because you kind of have to um, when you're in Philly. Uh, and um, that take, that'll be about 10, 15 minutes. And then I'm going to turn it over to Jen, who's going to ask me some questions about the very sordid history of Pennsylvania um, and uh, tear gas, both historically and contemporarily. And we'll kind of situate that in a kind of broader global discussion. And then we'll turn it over to you guys for questions. Yeah? OK. Um, so I'll you know, put your voice on. Okay, so I'm going to read an excerpt that comes from a couple chapters into the book, so just to kind of set it up um, where we are. So very, very briefly, um, Tiergas is thought to have been first played with by the French police in the really early 1900s following their experience with trying to get people out from the barricades during the kind of French Revolution. And, they, and over kind of all that resistance that was happening in France, they loved barricades. And the police, this really like baffled them, they didn't know what to do. And so we think that the first chemical weapons for policing actually came through that. But what made tear gas popular was its use during trench warfare during the First World War. Uh, and again, the French were the first to use it, and then the Germans retaliated, even though the Germans were usually blamed for being the ones who used chemical weapons. It wasn't the, actually the Germans first. And so they used tear gases because trench warfare created a kind of stalemate, and they couldn't get people out of the trenches, and of course there was wars to kill each other, and they were like, it was slow process of killing each other. And so they thought, hey, let's develop something that will get people out of the trenches, disorient them, psychologically torment them, and make it easier to kill them. And so tear gas was used in order to fire either artillery or to um, put more deadly gases on people. So that's kind of like where we are and the world were one. We've used tear gas. The early tear gases weren't all that effective, but that was like the logic of their kind of construction. So we're going to dive in to just this post-World War one era, and we're in the US. Um, and these kind of generals and people who are really important in the First World War really don't want to lose their jobs. And they're like, whoa, we did such a good job with chemical weapons and war. Like, how do we get these things used for peacetime? So we're kind of entering there, the scene there. With his thick mustache and piercing, deep-set eyes, General Amos Fry's passion shone through as he spoke. In a 1921 lecture, Fry's lauded the US military's chemical warfare service for its wartime achievements. The US entered the chemical arms race with no precedents, no materials, no literature, and no personnel. 
And yet, the 1920s became a golden age of tear gas. Fries capitalized on the US military's enthusiastic development of chemical weapons, turning these wartime technologies into everyday policing tools. As part of this task, General Fries developed an impressive PR campaign that turned tear gas from a toxic weapon into a harmless tool for repressing dissent. In efforts to perform this feat, over the autumn of 1919, General Amos Fries worked to secure a network of publicists, scientists, and politicians to rally for the cause. Together, they strategically began a full-scale multimedia marketing campaign to promote what they called war gases for peacetime use. Fries and his friends created an association to bring briefs before the Military Affairs Committee of the House and Senate, as well as to get in touch with various scientific and other bodies. In addition, they arranged for writers and publishers to cover stories on the benefits of chemical weapons. This advertising initiative would be led by Major Pop, an enthusiast and a hard worker with good manner and address. The trade press provided the first and largest form for the spread of their tear gas gospel. In a 1921 issue of the magazine Gas Age Record, journalist Theo Knappen profiled Fries, the dynamic chief of the Chemical Warfare Service. Knappen wrote that General Fries had Given much study to the question of the use of gas and smokes in dealing with mobs as well as with savages, and was firmly convinced that as soon as officers of the law and colonial administrators had familiarized themselves with gas as a means of maintaining order and power, there would be such a diminution of violent social disorders and savage uprisings as to amount to their disappearance. Lauding General Fry's new product, Knappen continued, the tear gases appear to be admirably suited to the purpose of isolating the individual from the mob spirit. He is thrown into a condition in which he can think of nothing but relieving his own distress. Under such conditions, an army disintegrates, disintegrates and a mob ceases to be. It becomes a blind stampede to get away from the source of torture. Nobody can travel very fast in a narrow street or in the midst of obstacles with streams of burning tears flowing from his eyes. I'm sure those who've been tear gassed in the room might find some resonance in this. So this is 1921 that we're, that we're writing this. So in the future, this guy, journalist Knappen, predicted when breaking up a demonstration, tear gas would be the easy way and the best way. This early promotional writing struck a careful balance between selling pain and promising harmlessness. Its psychological impact was what set tear gas apart. It could demoralize and disperse a crowd without live ammunition. Through sensory torture, tear gas could, could force people to retreat. These features gave it novelty value in a market where only the billy club and bullets were currently available. In addition, officers could disperse the crowd with what they called a minimum amount of undesirable publicity. Instead of lasting traces of blood and bruises, tear gas evaporates from the scene. Its damage promised to be so much less pronounced on the surface of the skin or in the lens of the camera. Beyond trade publications, radio speeches, and news features, General Fries and his network staged large-scale product demonstrations. So this is the 1920s. This is the birth of PR. Some of you might have heard of Edward Bernays, um, who was using Freudian psychology in order to, in this like really early stage of kind of manipulating the mass public into buying things. And one of the things that they did was stage these these kind of performative demonstrations or spectacles, kind of almost what we think of as like guerrilla marketing now. So. On a balmy July day in 1921, General Fry's old friend and colleague, Stephen Lenoy, brought large supplies of tear gas to a field near downtown Philadelphia. Here, he enacted the power of war gases for peacetime by inviting members of the city's police department to experience its effects firsthand, soliciting reporters to record the spectacle of 200 policemen faced <coughs> with tear gas, Delanoy set the stage for an enticing media story. A reporter from the New York Times described how the gas thrice sent the police into hasty and wet-eyed retreat. As the demonstration continued, Philadelphia's police superintendent selected a battalion of his huskiest men with instruction to capture six men who were armed with 150 tear gas bombs. They fared no better than the first bunch, as three times they charged, but each time were driven back, weeping violently as they came within range of the charged vapor. After the demonstration, police officials told the Times that the staged event undoubtedly proved the value of tear gas in police work. The gas, they concluded, would likely replace means hitherto used to subdue mobs and criminals. 
This early demonstration in Philadelphia spawned a major national and international campaign for the use of tear gases by law enforcement agencies. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, both the military and commercial manufacturers peddled their products to police departments, national guards, prisons, and private security firms. This marked a turning point in what today we call the militarization of the police. As historian Daniel Jones writes, a few police armed with this weapon could disperse a mob easily and destroy the impact of a mass demonstration. The dramatic increase in the power of police forces in handling mass disturbances certainly meant a loss of power to any group opposing established order. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more from the reading here, but this really, to me, in looking at the criticism that happened around the police response to um, the white riots after the um, Eagles' victory, I think is a really important uh, point of, of, you know, who is it, when do we need tear gas, and who is it that's opposing the order, right? And so you see the, really the historical roots of this question. So by the late 1920s, two US-based tear gas manufacturers, Lake Erie Chemical Company and Federal Laboratories, were deeply embroiled in handling such disturbances. So this company, Fed Labs, is based in Pennsylvania, and it starts because the Gen General Fries uh, donates some of the military supply of tear gas to like his war buddies, and then they become like entrepreneurs in the tear gas business. So these two early companies are like wartime buddies making a commercial market out of um, this like direct transfer of military product. So they peddled these new products to put down both labor strikes and international conflicts. In addition to close military ties, representatives from these tear gas companies fraternized with industry executives and local police forces. They followed news headlines of strike disputes and sent their salesmen into high conflict zones. In a 1936 article for The Nation, Frank Hannigan explains, firms engaging in this sort of business do not wait for strikes to commence. They go after the business before trouble breaks out and persuade industrialists to arm, regardless of the consequences to workers. Displaying such foresight, Mr. John Young, president of Federal Laboratories, wrote to one of his agents that he had seen a notice in Sunday's Herald Tribune. They're expecting labor trouble at the Panama Canal. He advised his salesmen, this paper lists the Callahan Co. and Gunther as contractors. I think if these people are properly solicited, they can be convinced of the importance of carrying tear gas on hand in Panama. I suggest you follow this through. In the United States, the use of tear gas to break up political protest was also great gaining ground. On July 29, 1932, the largest, quote, practical field test, and this idea of field test is what the US military uses to refer to the first time that they roll out a new product. Um, so they first use of these uh, field tests of these new tear gas technologies occurred when National Guard troops stormed the Bonus Army encampments in Washington, D.C. The Bonus Army was a group of veterans lobbying to receive their overdue World War I wartime payments, and they were living and protesting outside the Capitol. During the National Guard's offensive eviction, tear gas smoke and fire engulfed the encampment. Two men were killed in the bloody eviction, and two infant children were said to have asphyxiated from tear gas inhalation. Official reports of the incidents claimed otherwise, but the Bonus Army saw this as another government cover-up. Their ballad, No Undue Violence, mockingly testified, We use no undue violence, so baby Myers be still. Though it isn't quite plain to your little brain, you are gassed with the best of will. For the Bonus Army, tear gas became known as the Hoover Ration, a further sign of growing economic disparity in America. But for police chiefs, industrial owners, and consulates around the world, the eviction of the Bonus Army was an opportunity to demonstrate the power of these new riot control products. The Lake Erie Chemical tear gas sales team included photos of the Bonus Army demonstrations and its highly illustrated product catalogs. These promotional materials depicted scenes of smoke chasing away stri strikers from Ohio to Virginia. Lake Erie's tagline became, one man with chemical warfare gas can put a flight of a thousand armed men. It ran across the bottom of its promotional communications as it made promises to provide an irresistible blast of blinding, choking pain that would produce no permanent injury. While manufacturers were busy extolling the harmlessness of their product line, hospitals were filling up with people suffering from tear gas injuries. Reflecting on this gap between marketing and reality, Hoover Blakenthorth of the National Labor Relations Board said, they say these tear gas bombs do not hurt. I happen to see one hit men, I happen to see 
the men hit by one of these, and all that could be seen of his face when I saw him in the hospital was one eye glaring at me and something like a mouth when he tried to call for water. More blood and spatum came out than anything else. The story of Amos Fries and his entrepreneurial social network is a cautionary tale. It reveals the origins of the dangerous relationship between the escalation of police force and the profitable pursuits of riot control manufacturers. As true in the 1920s as it is today, protest becomes an opportunity to field test new weapons. Austerity and injustice are mobilized as excuses to sell, research, and develop weapons that are designed for use against civilians. In the years since Amos Fries brought military tear gas to the policing of protest, the repression of political communication itself has become a commodity. It is traded and sold in the weapons advertisements, market reports, and expo galas that feed the less lethal industry. This industry expands so long as protest stays criminal and the police can be persuaded to purchase more and more military-grade goods. While Fry's power was contested and had its limits, his ideologies shaped the military transfer of tear gas for civilian use. His dangerously myopic visions of good and bad Americans legitimated the deployment of chemical weapons to crush popular uprisings. In 1935, Fry testified to Congress, there is no room in this country for any ism or any word ending in these letters except Americanism. Perhaps not surprisingly, tucked among General Fry's personal files is a membership form for the Ku Klux Klan. Although in his archives it's left blank, the form is accompanied by a personalized membership solicitation letter praising Fry's initiative to ban the teaching of communism in public schools. The letter, typed on women of the Ku Klux Klan stationery, pledges to support Major Fry's and his committee to the fullest extent. General Fry's militarized white supremacist vision saw the duty of a true American as the protection of our country against any foreign dangers whatsoever, whether it is from aliens outside or not. His campaigning served as a precursor to the era of McCarthyism that followed, and today his agenda echoes in the words of President Trump and the rising right wing across this country. So on that really depressing note, <laughs> um, I guess I'll turn things over to John. Thank you for listening. So I definitely want to get into the history here in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania, but it might be helpful to take one step back and ask, what is tear gas? Hmm. So tear gas, as I'm sure many of you have experienced firsthand, um, is, a, uh, is, a, is a chemical. It's actually not a gas. It's liquid particles. And it's thought to be a gas because it's usually released with smoke. And often that smoke is colored. And that's what creates the cloud. And because for, if you're a photojournalist, as you probably know, um, what you, that picture is just really, really you know, worth a lot of money if you get that shot that second where there is that perfect cloud or you know where there's a brown person throwing a canister or one of these things that you can sell to a paper that are our kind of stereotypical visions of what tear gas is and so we've ended up with a kind of cultural imaginary that tear gas is this cloud of smoke and if you can imagine for people who um, don't engage in protests and only really witness this through a tv screen or a twitter feed you know, there, there's this kind of sense that it is this, you know, benign or innocuous because it just looks like this white fluffy cloud. And because usually we see shots um, that, that are also these kinds of criminalizing shots um, of people there. So we have this very kind of distorted view um, and even its name itself that was chosen on purpose to be tear gas is because they wanted to, it to sound like it was just crying. Um, and even today, like the people who are in charge of the Chemical Weapons Convention actually put a slide up at, at one of the recent meetings of a guy chopping onions and explained to like international delegates that tear gas was like chopping an onion. And so this kind of ongoing creation of this sort of fiction, right, to, to take us away from the idea that it's a chemical weapon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a chemical weapon, and yet it is banned for use in warfare. Is that right? Yes. So um, even as, as kind of far back as before the Geneva Convention, um, we already saw a push to not have chemical weapons be allowed for warfare. Uh, and then today, the most recent version from the 90s 
makes this uh, um, objection. So it says we can't have chemical weapons, but we are allowed to have what are called RCAs, riot control agents, for law enforcement use. And then it's super vague, and there's like no definition of what falls under that, no um, sense of like how potent something can be to be in the exception. And regardless, you're not supposed to use the, um, chemical weapons as offensive. So there's also this division where it's seen as like, well, the police are using it defensively, and that's why we have this like stipulation that it's allowed. Huh. So that's how it becomes this loophole with in domestic use, you can use tear gas, but you could not as a foreign power. Yeah, so it has to, I mean, it's very policy and complicated, but yeah, so yes, in brief, yes. Okay. Um, I want to hear more about this PR campaign to brand tear gas as not harmful. What's some of the language you've seen between what the industry is saying about it and what the public is being told about tear gas? Yeah, so in a contemporary, in a, in a kind of yeah. contemporary context, I mean, what we've seen over time and why, you know, in all kinds of archival use is always really useful because people didn't lie in the same way back then that they have like learned how to lie now. Um, so now we, it's gotten very pseudoscientific. Um, there's even um, like, they, they've got these like charts and they've got these like stats and then everything is sort of like the velocity when fired at the angle of the obtuse of the, you know, and, and, and this kind of idea that everything is kind of stripped back to this sort of clinical definition. And so we never talk about body words or feeling words. Um, it's always done in this really kind of hyper-medicalized um, way. And then there, there are things like warning labels on all the products um, that say like, do not fire this directly at someone, must be a highly trained professional. Um, so, that, so it's not that those things so aren't there. They're just, you know, they're, they're like the fine print when you're watching, like, you know, a pharmaceutical advertisement, right, mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah. So in your excerpt, um, of course, that took place here in Philadelphia. What was the significance of that demonstration, and how did that mm. ripple out afterwards? Yeah, so we have to remember that it's, you know, it's 19, the 1920s, so, like, we don't have Twitter, um, and we don't even have, like, television. So... What, what you're largely having people circulate are newspaper clippings. So between both the, within the U.S., between police departments, as well as between U.S. police departments and colonial offices all around the British Empire, you're sending clippings of these kinds of stories. And so that story in Philadelphia, right, they, they solicited, they got all of these journalists in to cover it. Um, big agenda-setting papers like the New York Times running big, full stories on this. And those stories were literally clipped out of the newspaper and posted both nationally and internationally around the world. And so when I was in the colonial archives in, in the, looking in the UK about, you know, British Empire and British, British Empire has got like nine countries at this time or whatever. And, and they're, they're debating whether or not to use, you know, let tear gas be allowed in all their colonies to suppress the kind of colonial uprisings that are happening at this time. And they're looking at this news story from this demonstration in Philadelphia talking about whether or not they should be using tear gas in Palestine. Right? So this is the way that there's kind of, and this circulation happens today in a similar way, just with very different technologies and at a much higher speed. Yeah, yeah so, so kind of take us to today. What's the current state of the tear gas industry and how has it changed in the past you know, few decades? Yeah, so the, the big kind of um, thing that they say in the less lethal industry is that um, after the Arab, Arab <coughs> uprisings, um, sales in tear gas tripled. And, so the, and that's true not just of tear gas, but of um, kind of the full, full riot control package. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I do as part of this research, I've been going to arms expos for the last 10 years, um, and I particularly go to this one where all the kind of riot control people are. Mm. Um, and we chat, you know, <laughs> as you do. Um, and there is definitely a sense that in a kind of post-2011 context that you know the state of the world is 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 unrest is austerity and that and you know is climate change and that what we need is these full-scale riot control solutions and so we've seen a kind of increase of course in the size of everything so now there's lots of um what we saw um used here in the pipeline protests um so big vehicles that have lrad sound on them and are also firing tear gas and flashbangs so they're like these big mounted sort of riot control multi-devices on, on giant armored vehicles. Um, and then also uh, drones are now allowed, so you can have drone riot control. They've not been used that often in civilian protests yet in um, North America, but they are being used in other places. Um, 
They're actually developed uh, uh, because of mining protests in South Africa. Um, and then you also have these integrated like tech analog systems. So mm -hmm. this Chinese company, Narinko, um, whose products were just used in Venezuela, if anyone saw the coverage of protests there, ha are like, it's like a command and control center where like the big vehicles like talk to each other and also are doing like very intricate surveillance, facial recognition, right? All these other kinds of things um, that were seen debated in the kind of body camera, axon, taser world. And they're integrating those with the kind of more analog um, kinds of riot control that we've seen for a while. So that's kind of where the industry is mm -hmm. at now. And they're feeling good now, you're saying? I mean, like it's the, a great time to be yeah. selling riot control equipment. Um, who is profiting from the sale of that equipment here in Pennsylvania? So the biggest company that's still here is called Combined Systems Inc. Um, and it, it's in Jamestown, Pennsylvania, which mm -hmm. you haven't been to here? I haven't been to yet. But you're going but to, yeah. So it's, I've not been there either. Has anyone ever been to Jamestown, Pennsylvania? So it's very small. Yeah, it's like um, 630 people maybe. And 200, and 200 people work at this company. So just to get a size of the scale of, of how big this plant, I think it's 70 acres and 19 yeah. buildings or something. So it's this massive amount of this town is, is taken up by this plant. They're one of the world's leading suppliers. They supply the entire MENA region. They have a special contract with the IDF in Israel. Um, their, their products were turning up all over um, Egypt, Bahrain, Turkey. Uh, they also supply Central and South America, and, and they have contracts with all kinds of law enforcement agencies around the U.S. Um, as well. Mm. Historically, Federal Laboratories was one of those first companies that was started by General Fries um, through one of his buddies, and that company existed until very recently, um, but ended up being sold to Mace, um, which probably people have heard of, um, and then Mace got sold to this thing called Armor Holdings, which is this guy in Florida who's like one of the other um, really, really big companies called Safari Land, and that's in Florida. So they ended up merging with something else. So Federal Laboratories doesn't exist, but its canisters are still sometimes show up in protests um, because we might get on this later, mm. but because people really love to use expired tear gas, uh, it's very cost effective. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and I do want to. I want to get back at some point. You know, talk about the effects in protests. I'm curious because we in Pennsylvania have this industry here um, to hear about the effects of its production. Um, what have you learned? And, and I can talk a little about what I've learned calling yeah. people. But um, what have you learned about the effects of it being produced, and then when it has to be destroyed or mm. um, disposed of? Yeah. So there's. Uh, it, there's obviously this is like talk completely toxic, right? It's the, all of the stuff, and then not only is the chemical are the chemicals toxic, but also they're working with like shrapnel and things that are explosive because you a grenade requires explosions, or a flashbang certainly requires explosions, and most flashbangs, so sound grenades, are um, are flammable. So all this stuff is being produced in this plant in this town where not a lot of people live. So it is both toxically poisonous as well as noise pollution, as well as lots of workers who get injured working on the products um, because of things like the shrapnel and the, and the fires. Um, and because it's such a small town, a lot of it doesn't really get reported or when it does re get reported, it certainly doesn't get like picked up by Philadelphia's you know, paper. Yeah. Um, and this is happening in all of these, you know, these are always in remote towns. Um, and there, there are so many scattered lawsuits, even class action lawsuits all around the country. But because of the ways that legal systems work and because mm -hmm. sometimes things get settled and then it never becomes public and because, again, it's small towns, it's working class communities, you just don't get a lot of <coughs> attention to yeah. these kinds of issues. Um, and then on disposal, because it's, because it's toxic chemical, it has to be disposed of in the way that other kinds of toxic waste has to be disposed of. And so there's also been some very interesting, um, totally messed up, environmental protection lawsuits where companies have illegally disposed of waste. And one of the reasons that we see lots of expired gas being used is because it's cheaper to like sell on um, to, you know, like another country or like a mm -hmm. department that doesn't have much money, your expired gas than it is to actually have to dispose of it. Um, and so you get this kind of whole mess of this industry around disposal as well. Wow. Yeah, and I will butt in to say, you know, and I, I hadn't known much about Pennsylvania's history until I read Anna's book. Um, and I started calling everyone who lived within a one mile radius of this plant out in Jamestown and um, was hearing from people that they're hearing explosions multiple times a day. Um, people who say that like they'll be out mowing their lawn and they can feel like burning on their neck. Um, one woman said that it had set off her carbon monoxide alarm 
Um, so people have been engaged in a lawsuit there since about 2008, um, and about half of them at this point have dropped out because they've seen sort of no movement on it. Um, so yeah, so that is happening right now in our backyard. Um, people who lived there since like 1978, and then this plant came in in 1995 right behind them, um, and haven't seen some of the promises of jobs coming to local people either for at least what they thought was the benefit of the plant. Um, what are the consequences in protest that you've seen? How has tear gas changed protest? Uh, I mean, I guess, I mean, the line, this is where it gets really messy because the line of the industry is, of course, that we would have, ha we would have to shoot people if we didn't have less lethal means of, of control. And there's times where that argument has more um, salience or effectiveness than others. So one of the main ways that they were able to allow for tear gas in India was because if anyone remembers the, what the Armistar massacre was, or the big scene in the Gandhi documentary film, um, where people are protesting in a, in a garden, unarmed people are protesting in a garden, um, and they, they just get shot, open fired on, and hundreds of people die. Mm -hmm. um, and that was used as an argument to legitimize the use of tear gas because they don't want to have to shoot everyone, right? Um, what they have found, actually, in the few studies that are done on this is that what, what happens is that police are just much more likely to go to a weapon than not go to a weapon when they have more options. So that the more options mm -hmm. that we give, the actual more li likelihood there is to be force rather than de-escalation or, um, as we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. like... Let's just let them riot till they're done, uh, which is sometimes allowed, and other times let's immediately yeah. when you tear gas arrest and yeah, exactly, yeah. and tear gas arrest and shoot people right and with rubber bullets, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, I want to go back to CSI. That's the one that's out in Jamestown for a second. Where have their products ended up after leaving Pennsylvania? Mm. Yeah, so they're the ones that have they have a contract with IDF mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, and then they're all over the Middle East, they're all over South mm. and Central America, and they're all over the U.S. They're like, they're huge in most countries. Yeah, yeah. they're in most countries. And um, a useful thing, if you are in the world of riot, riot control um, identification, which is the other thing we do, is train people how to understand um, what riot control weapons are and how to identify them and how to like create chains of accountability around that. Um, so we have a project called Riot ID, and you can download all our stuff from there. Um, and so one of the things that's really useful about Combined Systems Inc. is all their spec sheets. So all of the, every single product and its numbers and what it does and how it's supposed to be used is up online. Um, and they have a really, really, they're, they're really well branded. Mm -hmm. So um, you can tell when the weapons are theirs. Whereas some, and that, you know, is an interesting one for them because it means that they have to deal with the backlash when the weapons get identified. But they have tons of brand recognition. Mm -hmm. And so whenever they use something and, and someone else is watching and they want some of it, they know that it's there. So they have some very particular products like the sting ball grenade, which are these round ones. Um, and when they explode, they have these little balls in them and then the balls can be filled with other kinds of chemicals. And, and again, that's a kind of counter deterrent. So it, the idea is that it can get more people at once and, and, it, and they're totally inaccurate. So from a human rights perspective, they're really, really dangerous and um, bad bad for human rights uh, because they, they are completely, you know, they can go everywhere. Um, mm. They also have something called a triple chaser, I think. There's another company that does triple phaser. I always get confused which one's which. And it um, splits into three segments and then, again, uh, similar for a similar reason. And then those three individual cartridges release um, tear gas or whatever is in them uh, mm. around. So, th so they've got these products that they kind of uh, also are known for and that they... Um, you know, that, that, that they kind of brand and then mm. other, other countries want them or other police forces want them because they've seen how effective they are in, in a particular situation. Yeah, well, I want to ask you about Riot ID also. You know, like these governments are seeing these products and saying, I want it for their effects. You're on the other side trying to track what these products are and where they go. So how does Riot ID work and why is it important to know who is making these weapons? 
Yeah, so we, I mean, the reason we think it's important to know, um, one, because uh, you don't know how to medically treat something if you don't know what it is, and often what we find happening is that um, people, you know, people will see someone injured, someone's foaming at the mouth, someone is having a rash, um, a fire starts, and there's no clear reason why this would be attached to something that they've been told only makes you tear or something that they've been told only should hurt your ears. Right? So one of the things that we're trying to do is to, to kind of public health education, you know, what are these things, how do they affect the body. Um, we work with lots of medics, street medics, and, and um, other kinds of pe people that would respond in these situations around that kind of medical piece. For corporate accountability, it's really important to know um, w which companies are shipping where. Are they shipping in places that, uh, from a policy perspective, that, that they should be? So sometime a country has an embargo because of human rights crimes and they're not supposed to be shipping to somewhere else. So if we can identify that a product has been moved, and that product wasn't supposed to be moved there, then you are in a kind of policy intervention world of kind of looking at why that's happened. Um, and I think in general, you know, it's an industry that largely escapes public view. The transactions are happening on purpose outside of the public eye. Um, th these, none of these things, water cannons are expensive, but and armed vehicles are expensive, but the actual ammunition is really cheap. And so from a kind of economic point of view, people don't care or follow it in the way that they follow the sale of missiles or the sale of even, even drones or something like this, even though yeah. drones are getting cheap. Um, and so it, it really escapes accountability, it escapes watch. And so one of the things that we're just trying to do is to say, you know, this industry also needs to be watched. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you were saying earlier we've also become so accustomed to images of tear gas in use. Like, it's one of the most ubiquitous images you might see coming out of a protest. How do you think we've become so used to the idea and the image of tear gas while at the same time interrogating it so little? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason is the removal. So if you're not there, you don't necessarily have the, the feeling of it and it just looks like protest or it looks like a riot. And so we've just become almost numb to those images in the way that we become numb through distance to many kinds of images of, mm -hmm. um, to, to many kinds of images. Plus added on to that is, is that we don't necessarily feel suffering unless you've been in that situation or there's another reason why you're identifying with it. People look at it and unlike uh, other kinds of images, um, like say of things that are happening to migrants, where you might look at it and feel sad even if you don't feel actionalized, um, but you do see suffering. Whereas we can look at images of riot control and not see suffering. And that is precisely why it spread, which is you know, kind of hopefully captured in that excerpt of that, the, the fact that they knew that in the media lens, this would make protesters look scared, look running, look chaotic. They knew from a PR perspective that that was a way to win this battle against protest. So they don't look like they're, they, if they look like they're suffering, they look like they kind of deserve to be mm -hmm. running or suffering. And they don't, you don't really see a harm in a straightforward way of like, the, the, this police person is harming this person or the state is harming mm -hmm. this person. Except in those rare cases, like the woman in the red dress that emerged out of Turkey, um, or the old woman in Portland during Occupy, um, like the pensioner, you know, pepper sprayed in the face. So sometimes we have these sort of sensitive figures that get mobilized to show riot control as suffering, but usually it's only an individual and usually it's only in very particular cases where that body, that suffering is like not, is, is somehow a good body that doesn't deserve it, whereas all the other bodies do deserve it, right? Which is also part of the logic. Yeah. What are some of the pressure points that you've identified where people can see this industry and influence it, especially, you know, here where we have a manufacturing company pretty close by? Yeah, I mean, I think for the Jamestown um, side of things, I mean, I think there's probably a lot that could be done to support the residents' case. I mean, even just talking about it, covering it, um, any kind of like solidarity sort of action or awareness raising, like part of the reason why that is not moving is because there's no, mm. no eyes on it. Um, uh, there have been staged demonstrations, very small ones, but um, at the plant uh, during kind of the, I think it was during the height of kind of the yeah. Arab, Arab uprisings, so activists went and, and did a kind of, you know, banners out, noise making, kind of just this plant exists, this is a thing, trying to get some coverage for it. Mm. Um, on a larger scale, um, there's kind of policy things that people can do where you um, make various kinds of uh, 
you file sort of injunctions or various kinds of like human rights violations that a, that a country is doing by shipping to another country. Um, sometimes dock workers and people who work in shipping have actually stopped shipments. And so again, kind of thinking about where lines of solidarity might be against around product cycles. Um, one of the things that we're doing, it, like a low-hanging fruit campaign, so Safariland, the Florida-based major manufacturer, the guy who runs that also runs Black Diamond, so for any mountaineering, climbing people in the room, yeah. they're a major sponsor of um, that kind of world, and they make lots of the equipment and the kit. Most people don't know that. Most people that do these kinds of sporting activities don't really like the militarization of the police. So there's a good kind of angle there at sort of um, what gets called the low-hanging fruit, going after this kind of side thing. He's also on the board of the Whitney Museum. Um, so there's some groups have been trying to kind of do some expose around the art washing kind of idea there. So also that kind of classic sort of corporate activism. How, name these people, look at their networks, look at who they're connected to, and think of, thinking about how we can form kind of campaigns there. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there's lots more questions that I could ask, but I'm assuming people in the room have some, and I might jump in. So. You want to have questions? I'll kind of call on people as we go. All right. Um, do you remember where the, the field was, where the famous? Mm. I don't offhand, but I do a have a picture of it. In front. <laughs> That's a great this idea. Is, this is way ahead of the pack. Yeah. For significance. Yeah. Of like wh what they put these historical plaques for. Yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. I'll send it to you. I have I have the clipping from the paper, so I can definitely send it to you. Yeah. I also wouldn't have known. Now, now I'll know. Yeah, know yeah now I'll know. You should visit while you're in town. Yeah, I should do. It was near downtown, which would be that could that's kind of vague. Yeah, but yeah. It could be like no, right I just in my neighborhood or something. It could be. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Mean, I'll look it up. I have. I, I know exactly where it is on the computer. <laughs> What oversight is there in manufacturing? Like, does each little company have its own secret recipe and nobody knows what goes in it? Or? Kind of. Like, there, there are safety protocols that are usually done kind of within in, in industry. So there are, like, sometimes the companies themselves have their own sort of safety standards and tests. Sometimes there's, like, an oversight body that does it. Um, some... Police, like some police forces, some countries have vague rules around the, what the potency of something can be, but there's no kind of major standard and there's certainly no kind of body, like standard body that's looking at any of it. Um, yeah. I'm curious more about your own story of how you got interested in this and how you started writing about it. I think you mentioned it's been like 10 years that you've been working on this or something. Uh, were you always thinking of writing a book, or did that come later? Mm. Well, I've been working on it for, for five years since I got the idea. I got the idea in a really geeky way. Like, journalists always want me to tell, like, a sob story about, like, the time I got hit in the head with the cancer. But, um, I mean, yeah, many other people have that story. Um, but, no, I got into it as a, I was writing on a history of protest camps. I saw these images from 1932 Bonus Army eviction, and I was like, wait a second. How, how are they using this stuff in 1932? I guess I'd assumed it started in the 60s, because mm -hmm. that's my memory of the images. And so then I started Googling, because I was on a postdoc and I had a lot of time. Um, and at like, by 2 a.m., I had like realized that no one had written about this, that this was a chemical weapon from war, and like that it was just being used on people and nobody thinks about it, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like your question, like, no, with, like we don't even, even like, as submerged as I've been in, like, activist movements for the last 20 years, like, we don't have that many critical conversations about it. We have critical conversations about policing, but we don't really have critical conversations about the, the kind of weapons themselves. More so post-Ferguson, I think, in the U.S. context. But, um, and, and, but I started writing this before that. Uh, and so, yeah, and so I just got kind of uh, geekily interested in, like, why, why is this not a story that's been told? Uh, yeah, thank you. This is really fascinating. I'm wondering, just like going on a fishing expedition, do you know anything about sound cannons? A little bit. Um, Can you tell us? About like flashbangs or like LRADs, like the, bi the big ones that project sound or the, the, big or the ones grenade that I've ones. I've only started noticing recently, but mm. maybe I've just not been looking. They're a little, they are, they're much more modern um, in, in their kind of development. Um, the experimentation with 
the other kinds of riot control, so both sound and um, projectiles, impact munitions, really kind of picked up steam post the kind of wave of wave of protests in the 60s. So in the 70s, we start to see a kind of lot of money and a lot of kind of military university partnerships form that are that are investigating these kinds of technologies. Um, and then they start to get sort of trialed either in Northern Ireland or in Palestine. Um, and then and then we start to see them kind of through the 90s trickle uh, more into North, North American context. Um, their, uh, their safety is evaluated in the same way that tear gas safety is. This is going to get really geeky, so I'll, I'll try to keep it quick. So um, the, the, way, the reason why it, they're called non-lethal or less lethal is because there's a point at which they will kill you, and that point is, has been clinically trialed on animals. And um, if as long as you use a dose that's down here, either a decibel dose or a, a chemical potency dose, um, then that's what, what makes it allowed to be um, less lethal. And there's all kinds of problems with that. Um, but, but, that's, but they work on the same kind, kind of logic that the dispersion of the sound, like the dispersion of the chemical, um, will disorient psychologically and physically torture people. And that it should not kill them or permanently injure them, um, except when it does. <laughs> Going off of that a little bit, can you, could you speak a little bit towards, so in January 2011 versus November 2011 in Egypt during the uprisings, there was a huge difference in the way tear gas was being used um, and the different types of tear gas. So in January, February when tear gas was being used, it didn't seem to have the same impacts and effects. But in November, mm. when the riots were happening or the protests were happening, against the police on stuff on Mahmoud Street and stuff like that, where there was a big change in shift. The tear gas, there was a lot of, there was a lot of people trying to do research around it as well. Mm -hmm. um, trying to understand why people were falling over just like suddenly. Mm -hmm. um, the tear gas cans looked like they were rockets. Um, I don't know if they were, so I was just wondering if you could speak to if there was in your research, you saw a shift or a change in what was being produced, how it was being produced or maybe what what was in effect or in existence because it was a really serious thing amongst amongst activists mm -hmm. during that time and you literally would see people just like falling over and like having convulsions and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, so there's uh, usually there's going to be two I mean probably more than two, but let's talk two reasons why we would we'd have that kind of shift. And um, Bahrain is also a good case for looking at the, at this because lots of researchers have gone in there and 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 really um, systematically chron chronicled what they call the weaponization of weapons. But they're humanitarian organizations, so we forgive them. Um, so one would be that you have more more potent, you actually have more potent chemicals, either larger doses being used or mixes of things. So all kinds of things can be mixed. You know, all they're already m mixtures. Um, so you could have other kinds of things that are causing, um, that aren't necessarily C CS or CN, um, but are other kinds of chemicals that are in something. You also do have things like nausea gases and these other kinds of chemical irritants that don't get used that much. Like in Israel, they sometimes use the, the smell one. It's called skunk as a brand name. Um, and all these things can also be, either mixed together or there are grenades that do multiple releases. So they release one thing and then another thing and another thing. Um, there's also been cases where um, things happen like CS is used with water, which makes it um, hurt, hurt much more or mu much more painful. So you can have these different kinds of intensifications of the actual chemicals and the potencies and the, and the discharges. In terms of things being fired like more rapidly at someone, either you could have um, uh, the, the, the grenades are the, the cartridges are designed with different velocities fired out of different kinds of launchers. So you could actually just be firing things much harder at people. You could be firing things that are much larger. You could be firing them from much shorter distances. You could be using, which often happens. Um, one of the cases we use when we, when we um, train people on how to do riot IDs uh, is from the um, protests in Baltimore where barricade penetrating munitions were being used on like a completely unarmed civilian crowd that are designed for breaking through like metal barricades where there's like a armed hostage situation on the other side. And those are just being used out, out in the street, right? Against children in, in the Baltimore situation. 
Um, and that's quite common, that, that kind of taking something that's in a police arsenal and just using it completely inappropriately, uh, whether nefarious or accidental or somewhere on the messy continuum, you know, of that. There was a case where a machine gun was used experimentally on a peaceful crowd in France in mm. 1891. Mm. And that's where they, like, they first used that particular machine gun. Mm. The army used it on the people. So yeah, and those kinds of multi-launchers. Yeah. So one of their, there's also these, you know, ugh, I was gonna, these amazing images because I'm a researcher and I say things like that. Um, <laughs> these very disturbing and distressing images of Manville machine guns that were um, used to make these tear gas multi-launchers. And at first they were so heavy that, that the police couldn't really even use them. But now they've like modernized that and now you have you know mul these multi-launchers. So that's another thing is that um, if the, the multi-launchers can shoot you know, six or 12 rounds one after the other, and, then if the, and those are just handhelds, the ones that are mounted can shoot many more than that. And so that's the other thing that you have happening is, is both a rapid fire shooting of something or the shooting of a mixture of things into a crowd and that, that can then create all kinds of um, un unknown, unprecedented kind of in injuries and, and, and um, bodily responses, right? And because and the, these things are not, are supposedly not designed to be used <coughs> together. There's another bit from the archives that talks about how they were developed to be shot at people's faces that I didn't read, but um, yeah, not surprising. Yeah, I wanted to just follow up on that quickly um, that you, you've written these are supposed to be non-lethal, less lethal weapons, and yet people have died, people have been seriously injured. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, where is that line drawn when people do, in fact, suffer from these weapons quite fatally sometimes? Um, I know you wrote, like, you're never using tear gas, as, you know, Megyn Kelly would disagree. Like, it's never an unsafe, it's never a safe thing. Mm. So, I mean, the main ways that people die are either because they're hit with the cartridge or the container, um, and this is true for, for sound weapons for, um, or, or for gas weapons, mm. um, or they die because the dose is too strong. Mm -hmm. um, and that dose can be too strong because um, the body that it's being shot at is very small or old or has epilepsy or a lung condition. Um, and so the measurable, tolerable amount uh, doesn't work for that person's body. Mm -hmm. It's like diverse bodies aren't taken into account in any of these kinds of trials or safety protocols. It can be that too much is released too close to someone. So they're mm -hmm. also, they're totally idealized situations, right? So, and, and every police officer is perfectly following protocol. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so if you fire five instead of one, then that's five times as much, right? So all the scales get kind of messed up that way. Um, there were um, like a dozen people that died in a car because uh, the, the prisoners were being taken somewhere um, and they fired the tear gas into the car and um, both that would cause suffocation or asphyxiation. Also it was flammable. So, um, and that's happened a number of times. Also in like SWAT raids, this happens, right? Where you put something flammable into a house and then so that's another way that people die is from the kind of either asphyxiation or flammability of the weapons in a, in a space. Um, so there's kind of like spatial reasons, body reasons, um, or, or stru being struck with something. Um, so we've talked a little bit, or you've talked a little bit about the impacts on the body. And I'm wondering if, there, if you've done research or you found anything around the long-term impacts of tear gas in the air in the water and mm -hmm. you know and in our bodies yeah because we, we see it and we deal with it on a very like immediate basis and i just wonder what there is about environmental impacts and the holding the, yeah yeah i mean very little research is the answer um, what has been the, the some there's a one amazing study long term because you have to do epidemiology it has to be long term so you have to have a researcher that's dedicated to going back or to the same place over and over again, which is why we don't have a lot of long-term studies on any of these kinds of things, particularly when it's something that's incredibly hard to get funded to, to study, like the effects of riot control. So there's one really good study in um, Adi Ada refugee camp in Palestine where researchers did go for like 25 years back to the same site and did like long-term interviews with people um, and found, yeah, that there were all kinds of respiratory 
um, problems. Um, miscarriage is, is something that's really common from, um, and again, like there was a Chilean study Chilean doctors did and then actually halted the use of tear gas in Chile for a little while in 2011, I think. Um, but again, there's like a scattering of studies. A lot of it's really testimonial based, which in a not clinical based, because it's really hard to do clinical trials on something like this. Um, so that gets kind of dismissed in, in sort of prestigious medical communities. So there's a lot of sort of politics around even trying to record this. And then um, both in, there's some, been some stories coming out of Jamestown about because people have lived by the space for mm. you know, 20 years and what are the effects. There uh, were some researchers in Northern Ireland that were trying to study the long-term effects and found that there is this higher rate of things like lung cancer within the communities. Um, but again, what happens is, is this sort of dismissal where either, you know, they say, oh, well, that's, you know, the high rate of asthma there is because people smoke too much, right? And it's this very class-based, very racialized kind of dismissal of these, these sorts of other kinds of, of, of health complaints. There's been a little bit of people looking at environmental damage, again, in Palestine is kind of, because Palestine has been basically tear gas, like parts of it, like almost every day for, since, since the 80s, if not longer. Um, there, there have been like dam major damage to agriculture, um, water pollution and this kind of thing. So what we were talking about before, dinner, the one place where you really see people talk about the toxicity is there's also like tear gas removal companies, like companies that are supposed to go and clean, or like if, if you accidentally set off tear gas in like your police car, there's like all of these protocols you have to follow to like immediately clean the completely damaging toxins out of your police car, right? And so the literature from the companies that do that work will talk all about the toxicity of, uh, and the lasting effects of it. In the Jamestown, Pennsylvania, you said it, that that company established itself in the, like the 70s or so? 1995. 95. It moved to Jamestown in 95. It's been okay. started in like the 80s, yeah. It, it sounded like what, what many buildings in, in, a, in a, like a large property spread out. It sounds like one of these uh, the, the munitions plants that they built suddenly in World War II was an yeah. existing place or was it new construction, you know? I think it's, I think new, it's new construction, construction. yeah, well, okay. that's hard to understand. Because when they declared war they, in World War II, they built these huge plants mm. in, the, like, in the Appalachian Mountains and everything to make the gunpowder and make the bombs and stuff. Mm. And there's, some of them are still going and some of them are not. Yeah. It's, it, what I found really interesting in what you're saying, Anna, is like the there's this problem of protests, and um, there's only a way, the, the, the gas was effective because it had this media significance, but also it dispersed and we didn't have to shoot uh, people. And so it was a kind of uh, like back and forth between the protest and then the counter protest. Has, have you seen evidence of any like kind of practices on the protest side that appear to be able to navigate around the use of tear gas as almost like a counter to that counter, or is it still kind of, um, is like the, I don't know how to express it. <laughs> Do they still have the upper hand in this situation, or are there things that protesters have done over time to counter organize? Yeah, I mean, on a on a very kind of small scale level, um, the history of, of gas masks and of, um, of of like remedies, like home remedies to resist the effects of, of tear gas, have been passed around since. Um, tear gas started um, in the 60s it was very popular to urinate on like underwear and then use this we've moved on <laughs> to Malux and these other kinds of uh, coke coca-cola you know does very well during during protest situations um, so but you have these kinds of amazing transfer like tra you know transnational transfers of, of of information and so one of the things that happened when I was doing interviews in Northern Ireland about um, the first Northern Ireland tear gassing in 69. And there happened to be people who were at May 68 in Paris, like oh. living in Northern Ireland at this time, who then like mm. taught this, um, mm. this, this basically this um, very poor neighborhood, um, decided they'd had enough and um, created like an autonomous zone out of their community and then defended it for three days. Um, and so they got, they, they got these tips from 
uh, students from from Paris and how to so there's these beautiful kind of stories um, and of course this happens now I'm sure so many people saw the kind of tw tweets between Syrian activists who developed this kind of mask and then the mask went to Egypt and then the mask went to uh, Occupy in the States and then it went to Hong Kong mm -hmm. and the Occupy movement there and so you get these kinds of transnational movements of sort of micro resistant or resilience tactics um, and Gezi was full of them the beautiful beautiful acts of kind of creative resistance against riot control to touch on that a little bit I was I'd seen a lot of uh, stuff in Eastern Europe with protesters saying that starting large fires was effective in combating tear gas do you have any thing you can say about that is there any scientific proof regarding that or is that just one of those things that people have decided works. I've not, I've never heard that. That's a first, actually. That's a first. I'll I'll look into it. I mean the the. I mean it kind of it kind of makes sense that yeah, if you had this other sm yeah. smoke, <laughs> that it would like, like what happens when you have multiple kinds of smoke together, and also like please stay away from fire. I mean, right? Like people don't want to go near the fire. Yeah. Um, I'd be happy to talk more about the effectiveness of fire with you, not in as public of a forum. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a question because some of the things that are coming up, you know, Palestine, Northern Ireland, there's this deep colonial and imperial history of tear gas. Um, is that shifting at all? I mean, is it still primarily like a colonial product or more governments using it at home? And if they are in ways that are racialized, are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, of, like the colonial logic of when and how to apply the the colonial logic when we see colonialism as we should as an intersection of class-based and racialized uh, oppression um, is still the logic that I think underpins um, decisions for use, which is exactly why we get the dialogue that's happening right now mm -hmm. um, around the Eagles and Black Lives Matter, right? And that and that that same logic. Um, and you can see it a little bit in some of the archive texts I was reading about where, where labor strikers and savages are intermixed. They're, they're, they're you know, foreigner inside, foreigner outsider. That mm -hmm. language that was there in the 1920s to justify the use of tear gas is the language that we still, we just have new words for it, right? But it's the language that you still constantly see. Yeah. Um, in, and so yes, is the short answer. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a question. It's, it's, I was just trying to think about um, your remarks at the beginning of your talk about um, how it how it sort of functions in images and mediation versus um, because in a, in a sort of spectacular battle setting, and I completely can see that. And I was sort of thinking about the the time most recently I experienced it, and it's quite quite a different series of impressions because this was in Exarchia in Athens, mm. and all these little sort of alleys and tiny streets with sort of lots and lots of little shops and sort of old, old people with their shopping bags mm. just experiencing fucking tear gas every, every day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is a very, it really, it seemed to be really bringing people together mm -hmm. in, a, in a hatred of the police. Mm -hmm. And all these bars were kind of, bringing people in out of the mm -hmm. tear gas mm -hmm. and giving, giving out free drinks and there seemed to be ritual. I mean, I was just a tourist, but it just mm -hmm. seemed like people were were successfully, since you brought up the the issue of like how it looks and stuff, mm -hmm. it was just sort of, well, this, this really looks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it doesn't successfully criminalize or, mm -hmm. or sort of um, abject the, the populations on which it's being used in a way. Yeah, and in I, so, think, I think the reality, the reality of use and what gets globally mediated are also different. Like we're not really seeing images of side streets in Greece that, where old people are being tear gassed, right? That's not international media coverage. I think that going back to Dave's question, like that, that we see amazing acts of kind of infrastructural solidarity as well. And so I've got these amazing colleagues in Birmingham that, um, I've been researching the ways that like hospital, like um, hotel lobbies be turned into hospitals during protests um, and like cafes that and bars that let people in and like kind of thinking about how those businesses become parts of movement architectures. Um, and those have there's lasting uh, effects of that. So they're actually looking at 
um, in Turkey and in Egypt, like businesses that were part of the protests and like what's happened to those businesses since hmm. that transformation. So I think you do get these kinds of really amazing kinds of, um, yeah, and I mean, what's happening in Greece more broadly too, right, with that kind of ways that infrastructure is being completely reimagined. Um, yeah. Maybe one more question in the back. I don't know them in detail. Um, I know that in the U.S., the Environmental Production Agency like over, has protocol on how, like, that deems uh, tear gases as toxic waste, and you have to follow like toxic waste disposal requirements. Um, it's public, so if you like wanted to know details, I could definitely send them. I could find it and send it to you. You mentioned it's often common that people will sell it to other countries. So you're, you're allowed usually to use expired gas for training. Mm. Still, though, you would have like spent material that you would need to dispose of, but in a, in a somewhat different way. Like when it's spent, it's like dis the, the disposal is easier than if you just have like a barrel of it. Um, we don't know that much about, about those trade routes of how the expired gas gets traded but it shows up all the time mm. so obviously it is being sold um what routes it's being sold or traded or gifted through uh is incredibly difficult to find out all right yeah that's good okay. yeah. thanks everybody all right thank you <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I will send this to you.